Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at Third Man Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And I'm really glad to be joined today in the shed by an overseas visitor, uh, Mate Schwelton. Um, anyone who's heard one of these or seen one of these before will know that I don't really like um, introducing the person I'm speaking to. I really like them to introduce themselves. So Mate, over to you. Just, just tell us a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, thank you very much. First of all, for the inv invitation, Alex. Uh, I'm very happy to talk here about uh, self-binding directives. And uh, yeah, so my, my name is Matthijs Scholten. I, um, I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I work in Germany now. And uh, my background is in philosophy. I did a, a PhD in philosophy at the University of Amsterdam. And back then it was kind of um, still a very kind of traditional philosophical uh, subject, namely free will and moral responsibility. Um, but during my uh, PhD project, I had the feeling that you know, some questions about uh, responsibility, um, mental disorder played an important role there because it's normally seen as a kind of an exempting condition. I wanted to know, uh, to learn more about that. And I noticed that at the philosophy department and knowledge about mental disorder and about um, yeah, the more empirical literature on that is uh, basically absent or it's hard to find. Uh, so then I moved to a uh, medical ethics department in Bochum in Germany. And um, there was already a specialization in um, ethics in psychiatry. And that's why the Institute attracted me. And uh, so since I've been working there now since 2016, and I've worked in uh, various kinds of projects, but also in the Bochum Salus project, uh, which is a very large um, interdisciplinary project on ethics uh, in psychiatry and specifically questions regarding uh, coercion. So it's a six years project and funded by the uh, Federal Ministry of Education and Research in Germany. Uh, just a matter of interest, how much longer is there left to run on the Salas project? Uh, we still have until the end of next year, so end of 24. It was a six yeah. years project we started in 2018. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, I, some fascinating stuff come out of it already, and I really look forward to seeing, seeing more of the results. But the, the reason, well, there are multiple things I'd like to talk to you about. I mean, the idea of a mental disorder is the exempting idea from or exempting condition of responsibility is just fascinating um, and coercion in psychiatry is equally important and, and fascinating but the reason that I wanted to have you in the shed uh, you mentioned earlier is in relation to self-binding directives so can you just sort of well just for somebody who's never heard of the idea just explain what it is uh, what one is and then we can sort of dig into the work you've been doing around them yeah good I think it would be good to first basically give a definition. So it's a document and that's already one thing. So it's a document you can write and it's a document in which you can write your preferences for a future episode in which you lack mental capacity. So if you lack mental capacity, you're due to your mental condition, not able to make decisions for yourself. So you make decisions you later regret or you would not have taken had you been kind of fit and well. Um, so it's a document which you can write and you write down your preference, preferences for such situations. You call that an advanced directive or an advanced statement. And uh, a self-binding directive is basically a 
an advanced directive or advanced statement, but then with a kind of add-on, so it's an advanced directive plus, uh, because there is a specific clause in it in which you consent in advance to compulsory um, hospital admission and or treatment. Uh, but you do so under self-prescribed conditions. So in the document you can write, for example, if I have uh, bipolar, I can write, if I sleep less than uh, four hours on two consecutive nights, if I'm engaging in these kinds of behaviors, sometimes risky behaviors, then uh, I would consent to involuntary uh, admission or treatment. And I would also give the mental health professionals permission to basically use force, pressure, uh, to get me into hospital. Uh, but I do so on the self-prescribed condition. So when uh, that's self-prescribed and also the kinds of treatment I would get uh, and receive in the hospital are also self-prescribed. So um, basically it's about, yeah, creating a document, stating your preferences, but also allowing mental health professionals to force you to get uh, to hospital. And some people need that. Some people don't need it. So uh, maybe that's clear uh, to state clearly from the outset. And so self-binary directives are an option and you could make use of the option, but you need not to, of course. So, I mean, uh, you saying they should be they're an option i mean just just a sort of matter of interest i mean it, is this a thought experiment or is are there places where actually this can be done i mean yeah, say it's not merely a thought experiment i, I think it started uh, in the in the literature as kind of a thought experiment uh, but it was already a very uh, a fairly uh, realistic thought experiment and uh, for example in the netherlands where i'm from we have a legal regulation regulating the use of self-binding directives. So um, if you live in the Netherlands, you can complete such a document and people have completed such documents, even though there are few of these people, um, but people have completed these documents and people are working with it. So service users and mental health professionals. I mean, how long, I mean, how long has that regime been in place? in the Netherlands? Uh, so they've been uh, legally binding there uh, already since now. I should mix up the, the, the German and the, 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 the Dutch numbers for advanced directives. So it's 2008 or 2009. Uh, okay. now. Uh, yeah, so they've been legally binding for quite some time now. And we had an update of the mental health laws in 2020. And then the uh, regulation for self-binding directives also changed. Some changes for the better, uh, other changes uh, for the worse. Well, just don't, don't 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 leave me hanging. What 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 was what was for better? What was for worse? I mean, just in sort of broad outline. Uh, the the changes for the better was that the article describing um, the provisions for the use of self-binding directives, which was much clearer, much more simple. Um, so in, in the former law, you basically had to, to um, I mean, the, the, the article was uh, four pages or something like that in a law. It was yeah. a lot of information to read. And now it's basically something 
where you get an overview of you you see what's the use so it really can guide um clinical practice and it can also guide service use so if you read the law you, you kind of know uh what's the idea behind it so i think that's a that's a very good point another good point is that uh, they moved the article forward in the law so it's really article four so the law kind of communicates it's an interpretation of course but i think the law communicates that uh, if you're thinking about mental health treatment attending carefully to the preferences of service users is really essential. It's something you start with. And it's not something that comes after all the um, other provisions for involuntary treatment. So I think these are the, the, uh, the positive um, consequences and the positive aspects of the new law. Negative aspect is that they, um, because in the Netherlands, and I think this is a good thing, if I complete a self-binding directive and I see uh, when I sleep less than four hours on two consecutive nights, if I engage in these kinds of behavior, then I want to be admitted to hospital, even involuntarily, uh, then uh, mental health professionals can arrange involuntary hospital admission only if they have an authorization by a judge. Even if you've made an advance or self-binding directive? Even if you made a, a self-binding directive. So it's basically my own, and it, it's an exercise of my own autonomy. And for that reason, you might think, well, you can just bring me to hospital then. But I think it's a good thing because if force is going to be used in that situation, my freedom to do what I want at that point of time, which is not sleeping, I mean, engaging in certain behaviors. That's what I want to do at that certain point in time. I don't want to go to hospital. That's a, the problem I want to solve with the self-binding directive. But So it is a deprivation of liberty. And so it's it's about weighing fundamental rights. It's my yeah. right to self-determination in my self-binding directive. It's also my fundamental liberty right to do what I want at a given point of time. And only the judge can weigh these kinds of fundamental rights. And so therefore you need an authorization. And you can do that in uh, several ways, of course. You can do that very quickly. So you can, for example, um, self-binding directives are not uh, binding in Germany, but there, if involuntary measures are used, a judge will come to the uh, hospital uh, within 24 hours. Uh, so it can be done within 24 hours, but in the Netherlands, you have to file an application to the public persecutor. Uh, it can be four weeks on his desk. Then he send, can send it to the judge. And then the judge has to make a decision within three days. So, But the maximum, uh, maximum uh, legal term for legal authorization of a self-binding directive is four weeks and three days, which is, of course, way too long. Uh, because decompensation, so I, my 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 condition, my health might get worse within a couple of days or uh, within one or two days even. So that uh, takes too long. I know um, just informally from talking to mental health professionals who use service uh, self-binding directives that they have found ways to make this process quicker. But I think it's a problem that in the law, these terms are so long in these time frames.
Gosh, there's so much, there's so much going around in my head at the moment about in terms of where we go direction-wise. Because I mean, one one thing for for people watching or listening in England and Wales, I think their minds would have been slightly blown by the fact that judges were involved from the outset, because just it, it, detention in England and Wales is, as it were, an administrative process. And if you don't, if you want to challenge your detention, you then appeal to a tribunal, so a judicial body. Whereas I mean, for all sorts of different reasons, uh, I know in, in many civil law countries, it's always judged from judged from the beginning. I mean, one thing just just to throw into the mix for you, Mate, I'm just very interested in your hot take on this, because our Department of Health and Social Care said in the context of, of um, proposed reforms to our Mental Health Act, we think you can already consent in advance to your confinement. And if you consent in advance to your confinement, then at a point when you're admitted to a mental health hospital and you don't have capacity to agree, we think you shouldn't then be viewed as being deprived of your liberty at all. Yeah. I'm just really interested in your time. I mean, I have to say, I think that, I mean, just to be very clear for anyone listening, I think that's just incorrect. I don't think that's what the law in England Wales actually says, but the DHR, Department of Health and Social Care says, that's what we think it is. I'd just be really interested because you've been thinking so deeply about this. Yeah. So I think there are two arguments against that. And I think I already gave the legal argument. So uh, in continental legal codes, so we have a constitution. We think in terms of constitutional rights. And if you have to encroach on a constitutional right, for example, the rights of liberty, it's not said that you can never do so. But there should be another right, which then uh, takes priority. Yep. And the only person who can do that or the only function in, in society is uh, the judge. Um, so therefore, I think that's one kind of th that's the legal reason for involving a judge in all kinds of involuntary measures. And that's also has to do with non-discrimination. So this is usually usually the case for uh, people who don't have a mental health condition. So you live in society, you can do what you want, and your liberty is is restricted uh, only when the judge permits uh, officials to do so. So I think as a matter of basic rights and non-discrimination, we should also do that within mental health care. And in relation to self-binding directives, I think there's also a more, much more practical uh, um, uh, argument to make, to make here, because one of the challenges of self-binding directives, and this is something we see in all the qualitative studies uh, we've done, is that a potential challenge or risk is that people are gonna exert undue influence on surface users with respect to the content of their self-binding directive. So just imagine I'm 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 a, I have a bipolar, and I spend a lot of money uh, when I'm in a manic episode. Well, my partner has a clear interest of stopping me to do that, and maybe the me mental health professional also has some interest because he thinks it's better for me if I come to a hospital. So here's some interest that I come to a hospital as well. Well, then I'm going to write an, uh, a self-binding directive. I bring my partner, 
talk with the mental health professional, and then we sit around the table. And then what happens? It could be, need not be, and I think there are kind of uh, safeguards we can implement to prevent this from occurring, but it could be that these parties are going to exert undue influence uh, on me so that I have a self-binding directive, and then I can be moved towards the hospital because other thing, uh, people think it's yeah. better, but not because I think it's better. And I think self-binding directives should have only one function, and that is serve as a kind of a, an extension of the autonomy of service users themselves. And they should not um, cater to the interests of other parties. So I think that's the more pro pragmatical argument I, I would bring it there. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, in a way, Matt, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I, I I will put the link to the I should say I'll put the link to the qualitative articles that you, you, you've been talking about um, because they're they're really interesting to get a sense of what people are thinking in in the three jurisdictions of England, the Netherlands, and Germany. But just just to stay with this point for the rest of our com or in our conversation. Is your sense of a does your sense of a self-binding directive actually sound more like it's not so much binding as I'm just giving a very clear indication of the factors I want you, someone external, so in your case a judge, to take into account when you're deciding whether or not coercion is valid. So it's not really so much I'm binding myself to accept it, it's just that I'm making a really clear statement. This is what I would. This is what I think you should do. Well, it, when it comes to the bindingness, I, I think you have to um, distinguish between preferences. So there are preferences that are legally binding immediately yep. without uh, a judge intervening. And there are preferences where a judge need to authorize them. It's So exactly. I think it's not that I specify some information and I give that to the judge and they say, well, you can do with it whatever you want. If you think it's a good idea, then we do it. If you don't think it's a good idea, then we don't. So I think it's not this kind of, that I merely state my preferences and give them to you as a piece of information. Now, I think they're uh, legally binding. And with regard to the preferences, so if I have certain medication preferences, for example, and I say, well, the next time I'm brought in, uh, to the hospital, I don't want to be treated with Haldol or whatever. Uh, with certain type of medication. And I would prefer treatment with another kind of uh, antipsychotic. Then my rejection of Haldol is just uh, legally binding without intervention of the judge. So a mental health professional is not permitted to give me that medication. I've refused that medication and this treatment refusal uh, should be respected. Um, and with regard to the positive medication preferences, it's of course, if I have expressed this preference and the treatment is also medically indicated, then uh, the mental health professionals are also under an obligation to provide me that uh, treatment. Uh, with regard to the involuntary treatment, I say, I, I'd say it's, a, it's binding, but conditionally binding, namely okay. it's binding on the condition that a judge checks, checks whether that's really the case. And what the judge checks is not, would it be a good thing, all things considered, to bring this person to the hospital? No, the judge should um, 
make a judgment about whether, for example, the conditions I described in my self-binding directive really obtain now, or the whether my partner thinks, well, uh, it's better if he goes to hospital because otherwise he will spend a lot of money, but I'm just having a good time and there's nothing wrong here. So that's the kind of the uh, the uh, the task for the judge. So look at the self-binding directive, look at the situation as it is now and see whether they, um, they're in agreement or not. And then also, of course, the uh, mental health professionals need to have a plan and say, well, if this person comes to hospital, we're thinking that we do this and that. And then the judge can also check, is that treatment plan in accordance with the uh, prescriptions um, in the self-binding directive? Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's yeah, no, there's so many additional things I'd like to ask because it's, it's so interesting when you start getting into, I mean, because I think partly the discussion reflects sort of different places. I mean, obviously different legal frameworks. So the legal framework in, in the Netherlands in terms of the weight is for instance, obviously very different to England and Wales where we don't even have necessarily binding ability to refuse medical treatment for mental health disorder in, 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 in when you're detained under the Mental Health Act. So I mean, there's a, there's a sort of different legal frameworks, but there's also sort of different, the philosophical take. And I think that idea of the judge being the person checking that the conditions are met is, is a really interesting one. But just mm. one last question. Do you, it, when the judge has checked, do you think it should then be viewed as this is in fact not involuntary confinement, but this is in fact what should be seen as confinement in line with the person's will? I think it's both. So I think we should just accept once we overrule the current preferences of a person, then it's um, it's coercion what we're using. Yeah, And we should accept that. We should not do as if we don't exert coercion or we don't exert force there. So we should accept it. So it's involuntary, but it's not um, merely an involuntary treatment because it would be better for society uh, that you're being treated or it would be better for your partner that you're treated. No, it's an involuntary treatment in line with the person's own will. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a consensual treatment in that respect, but it's a treatment uh, which can only be carried out by overruling the current preferences of the person, and therefore it's involuntary, and therefore also the kind of the, the the special safeguards that come with these kinds of treatments also would apply. Yeah. And I think uh, that's important. Brilliant. Well, Matto, we we really just barely scratched the surface of an awful lot of fascinating stuff. And what I'm going to do is I'll play. I'll put links to to both the, the Salas project, but also the articles um, you, you, you've touched on so that people are interested in learning more, and in particular, um, learning more about how the legal frameworks look in the three jurisdictions um, can, can, can trace those down. Thank yeah, you very much indeed. It's good to, uh, if, 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 you, if you're going to specify the links to the articles, because we talked a little bit about the legal situation, a little bit about the risks and challenges, but there are also a lot of benefits to self-binding directive. Directive. So maybe I just want to stress that, and uh, you can read that in articles what the benefits are, and there are many, and a lot of people agree on the benefits. Uh, so that's uh, I think important just to emphasize. 
It is completely matter. I'm sorry, my mind always defaults to complexities, but I think it is really important to emphasize and, and those articles really pull out and not just in a thought experiment way, pull out actual experiences from people saying this is why self-binding directives are good. So I think, it, as you say, it's really important we've got that alongside some of the knotty stuff we've been discussing. So thank you so much for your time, Matteo. You're welcome. It was a pleasure.